If you were advising the next president of the United States, what would you advise them to focus on? I would certainly encourage that person to try to use the, the office to appeal to Americans to you know, lay down your cudgels. We've got problems that we share here. That's Mitch Daniels, the former Republican governor of Indiana, who has resisted calls to return to public office since he left the statehouse in 2013 and tries to stay out of the political fray. If I was gonna violate my vow of political celibacy, Margaret, you'd probably be the one to get me to do it. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Daniel served as an advisor to Ronald Reagan and as President George W. Bush's Director of the Office of Management and Budget. He's a pragmatic fiscal conservative who as governor balanced Indiana's budget year after year. Today, he has deep concerns about the nation's fiscal health. Whatever your view on any other question, you know, yours will not be a better future if the country goes broke. In 2012, the GOP seemed to think Daniels represented the future of the party when it tapped him to deliver the response to President Obama's State of the Union address. The status of loyal opposition imposes on those out of power some serious responsibilities. But instead of running against Obama, Daniels took a post as president of Purdue University. We were put there to widen the gates of higher education, and we believe very passionately in trying to remain uh, affordable and accessible. There has even been talk about whether Daniels would join a no-labels ticket that could offer an alternative to an unpopular Trump-Biden rematch. While Daniels insists he still has no interest in running for president, he says dissatisfaction with the current frontrunners could open the door for another option in 2024. I don't for a moment agree with those who say, well, third candidacies just never work out. I know the history, but every so many decades, something does change. Governor Mitch Daniels, welcome back to Firing Line. Treat to be here. Thanks for having me. When you gave the Republican response to the State of the Union in 2012, you denounced divisiveness. You even had a few flattering words for President Obama. What would happen if you gave the exact same version of that address in today's Republican Party? Probably wouldn't be as well received as it was back then. Um, I was raised to, uh, in a tradition and, uh, of the loyal opposition in which you might disagree very strenuously in the, in the party uh, out of power, but that you uh, owed, first of all, some respect to the occupant of that office or any office and to our institutions. So uh, I, I remember that the speech was well received by the likes of uh, Rush Limbaugh who said when I started, because I did say, I, I, I uh, did say a couple complimentary things about the president. I tried to identify a, an item or two. Some of his education policies under Secretary Arne Duncan were pro-charter schools and, and pro-accountability. So I thought it was part of the, of the task that I'd been asked to take on to uh, indicate that where we could, we ought to try to agree and cooperate. Then I went after him about the state of the country and economic policy and fiscal policy and um, the nanny state that, that, that I thought they were running. So if anybody stuck around to the end of that, uh, whatever it was, seven or eight minutes, they were under no illusion that uh, I 
uh, was anything but a, an opponent of, of the administration's policies, but I tried to do it in a way that I thought was consistent with our traditions, and I hope one day will be again. Well, those traditions, especially when you look back at your tenure as a two-term governor in Indiana, included things that Republicans and the modern American conservative movement had stood for for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Lowering taxes, reforming education, balancing the budget, looking after the, the fiscal health of the state. Right-to-work laws. You made Indiana the right-to-work state. Actually, the first one north of the Mason-Dixon line since the 50s. Subsequently, uh, a few more followed, but it was a breakthrough at the time. No, I don't think anyone um, who looked objectively would would find our time in that job as anything but uh, staunchly what we call conservative and pro-freedom. but there's, there's always the question how you get there. First of all, how you get there at all, how you succeed. And we had, a, we had at the time a highly competitive state. Half the, of our eight years, there was a Democratic a Speaker of the House and majority. And so it just seemed to me practical to try to uh, handle that job in a way that uh, brought people together. I, I used to say to our folks all the time, we're here, we're here to make big change. We're not here to shoot BBs, you know, we're, we're, we're going for big game. And big change requires big majorities, at least if it's gonna endure. And I, uh, we need big change in the country now, and uh, 50% plus one or even less than that, uh, a sort of politics is less likely to produce them. So if you're interested in results, not just, you know, a temporarily satisfying tweet that you launch at somebody, then um, I think you're obligated to think about ways you might persuade, attract, and certainly not drive away uh, people of goodwill who might uh, come to agree with you about the change you want to make. Is there room for that brand of conservatism in the Republican Party anymore? Is there room for that brand of, of, of politics in the in a Democratic Party that's dominated more and more, intimidated really by its by its um, radical left? I think this is um, you know the, the central problem uh, of our politics. It's not only poisoned the environment, which very few people, except the people practicing that kind of politics, can enjoy at all. But uh, but once again, it, it is. Uh, I think the biggest cause of our paralysis in the face of challenges that really don't permit us to remain paralyzed. But is there room in the Republican Party? I know you say the Democratic Party has the same problem, but is there room in the Republican Party for this kind of approach? I think there could be again. You know, it's, uh, uh, I don't don't think it's irreversible that um, our parties uh, remain captured by their edges. Ultimately, political parties exist, and the reason we've only had two of them historically is there were differences, of course, but they were ultimately, they're, they're there to win, an ele- to win elections and to capture the middle. And that uh, incentive hasn't gone away. They have stopped trying to capture the middle, it seems. Yeah, too many uh, uh, people have. And if that, if that persists, if that does prove irreversible, then uh, I could easily see a reformation once again 
Uh, the emergence of a new you know, party. Is it the, the day before we're visiting here, I spoke uh, uh, in a place called the Wig Clio at Princeton, Princeton University. University. It's the nation's oldest debating society and a good model because they have civil, vigorous civil debates about things without um, uh, sort of the vilification and that uh, uh, too often happens these days. But anyway, uh, I pointed out we were standing there in Wig Hall. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen often in history, but it happens that parties or um, what have been uh, governing coalitions fracture and come back together in some different form. And uh, I, I just don't think what we have now can uh, be sustained permanently. Well, I want to get to a little bit of the uh, topics that have happened this week. The Republican conference was uh, unable to agree on a new speaker for the last three weeks. What message does it send? Um, that they're, they're more interested in internecine politics, personal advantage and publicity than they are in, in building better America. And it's not happening at a quiet time, to say the very least. You know, this country's facing dangers, you don't need me to tell you, that are um, as large as any we've seen in a very long time. Many people wiser than I am uh, will say the biggest danger since World War II. So this is no time to uh, show the rest of the world uh, a, uh, a lead, the leading country, the supposedly indispensable nation in Madeleine Albright's term um, that uh, can't even get the furniture in the right place in order to in order to sit down and act. Congressman Jim Jordan uh, attempted to replace Kevin McCarthy as speaker mm -hmm. and received 20 votes from Republicans against him, uh -huh. but more than 100 votes against him in a secret ballot. Mm -hmm. What does it tell you about the Republican Party that so many are willing to oppose him secretly and not publicly? Remember, Margaret, uh, I'm not ducking here, but uh, uh, for the last 10 or 11 years, I have, uh, by virtue of a, holding a very different job, I, I swore I always had a vow of political celibacy, which I have observed really for more than uh, 11 years. Um, so, uh, so I don't know most of these folks as maybe once I would have, and uh, I, I'm very hesitant to judge. It's but it's very, very clear that uh, if you lead an insurrectionist um, uh, movement inside any kind of organization, you will antagonize people. And then if you turn around and ask them for their help and support, uh, this is only human for many of them to say, uh, no, you weren't there when, when we asked you to be a team player. Many of them who voted against Jim Jordan came out and said that they had publicly received death threats mm -hmm. for not supporting him. One could surmise perhaps more of them weren't vocal because of this. Well, that would be human too. You know, that's just a, there's, there's nothing uh, particularly Republican about that. This is a, um, a, an ugly feature of our times. You know, people who, and, and now that we're in an everybody an expert, everybody can sound off social media world, uh, I know people who have received death threats over all sorts of questions. Some of them aren't even political. And so uh, 
you know, you have to hope that that uh, people is, uh, whose lives have some sort of vacuum in them such that they would issue such a threat uh, don't mean it. Yeah. Well, one can hope. There is a heightened sense of, of violent rhetoric, though, yeah. that... Yeah, no, I mean, for the first time, certainly in my lifetime, you can't exclude this, and we've seen it. Think about Congressman Scalise and people like that. Um, but, um, you know, uh, overwhelmingly, the American people still, I believe, are a better angels culture, represent a better angels, as we say, culture. And I'm still... Uh, I'm stubbornly optimistic it'll reassert itself. The Republicans are divided um, these days over support for Ukraine. President Biden recently requested $105 billion as an aid package, not just for Ukraine, but for Israel, for Taiwan, and also for support along the southern border. Uh, some in a neo-isolationist wing of the Republican Party absolutely reject the tethering of aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel. Do you see a connection between these two conflicts? There's an obvious connection in that, um, that people uh, in the world who do not share our values and, um, and uh, d despite the hopes that uh, uh, many people, including some of our previous presidents have expressed, I don't think we'll ever share our values. Um, uh, have a, must see an opportunity to have a, at least a loose alliance against an overstretched, uh, potentially overstretched um, nation like ours. Um, and I will say, I, I think it's important that we um, support both those defenses of freedom in both places. However, um, there are there is a second reason to at least pause here. We think about the number you just mentioned: hundred and five billion dollars. We have become so desensitized over the last couple administrations to spending and what I what we really do is borrowing, yeah, unimaginable amount previously unimaginable amounts of money. If somebody can throw a number out there like that and. And, and, and people almost look past the number and go on to the debate about the uses. So um, th th I'm opening a whole other subject well, here. But And I want to get to the yeah. debt. I'm happy for your opinion right now. You know, Governor, <laughs> former OMB director, when people hear the $105 billion, mm -hmm. there's no way to conceptualize that. Right, right. So how do you make the case that that's too much? Well, we, the, the number that's really, if you think that's hard to 33 grasp, trillion? Yeah, think, think 33 trillion, which, which understates- the size of our national it, debt right that's now. That's the yeah. debt right now, headed north in a big way, uh, possibly soon an out of control way as uh, artificially low interest rates are going away, which have been protecting the federal government to, an ex to a large extent. Um, it, no, I mean, th this- leads us very likely into a terrible economic situation. I mean, the federal government right now is borrowing half the money that gets lent in the whole country. So that's not a formula for economic growth. And, and it's, uh, uh, you know, a very dangerous situation 
in terms of, of maintaining confidence in the world that, that they should continue to use the dollar as the international uh, medium of exchange. And so, uh, but just, you know, I don't want to minimize the economic risk we're running, but what some of our great military leaders have labeled the debt the biggest security challenge we're facing. And, and now you know why they said that. Here we are facing two current Ish, uh, matters of uh, aggression against allies and potentially more if um, people who wish us ill see a great opportunity or a mutual opportunity. And uh, so it's an economic um, accident waiting to happen, as people say. In fact, accidents waiting to happen tend to happen. Yeah, It's a national security risk of the uh, uh, of the highest order. And beyond that, if we're lucky enough not to have that sort of a, of a catastrophe, uh, awaits a social betrayal that really bothers me when people who have been led to believe that uh, their elderly years are protected are told, sorry, we can't, we can't manage that. You have been uh, a fiscal hawk for many, many years. And you've been upfront with the public that entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare are simply unsustainable uh, without significant reforms. And you wrote in 2021, even in a Washington Post column, that, that we had actually now passed the point of no return in terms of being able to make fundamental changes to these programs while still being fair to the people to whom we have made these promises. Um, what is the real truth about what the future of Social Security and Medicare look like right now, yeah. given the fact that we haven't taken the opportunity to reform them in the last decade? I'll start with an admission. Uh, maybe a dozen years ago, I wrote a book full of optimism. Uh, qualified it by saying I couldn't prove it, but uh, I, I thought we ought to approach our problems optimistically and that we could speak to the American people about the pro about the. Uh, problem we were building for the future, about the fact we were borrowing, uh, uh, even then, um, uh, uh, enormous amounts of money, not for investment in our future, but being spent on current consumption, that we were plundering our children, and people didn't know that. And I thought if we, if we talked, talked about it, and if, if, that there was, there was time, uh, had, uh, had we started down a path of, of some moderation, as the Simpson-Bowles Commission mm -hmm had recommended, um, we could work our way through this. But a lot of time has passed since then. We have not only haven't acted we, uh, against those problems, we've made them worse. We've had two presidents who made them worse, not better. We have a, another who has uh, pledged himself to the same. They've been Republicans and Democrats. That's correct. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I don't like facing up to this, but we have not shown ourselves to be the sort of self-governing people who can make a grown-up decision. And I don't blame the American public because, again, they've been misled in the, in the entitlement literature. The proponents of all this describe it as the noble lies. You know, it's your money. You're just getting back what you paid in. They, so course, there's a condemnation on the leadership class? It, well, I mean, it is a, defa a default of leadership. There's no question about it. And... Uh, one day, I think history will judge harshly. Um, so yes, um, we passed through a period where 
where I thought we could have managed and probably kept most of the commitments. Um, we've arrived at a point where uh, when the uh, moment of reckoning comes, uh, we'll not only do things that are very unjust and unfair to vulnerable people, I, I, I'll, I'll use the phrase again, I think we will create a moment of enormous social betrayal. You think we have alienation now of people feeling that their leadership, their elites, um, which used to be a term of praise, now it's a pejorative in many cases, probably with some yeah. uh, justice. Um, if, if you think folks are um, upset now, wait for that moment. Well, this is something you've been talking about for a long time, but so have people on the right. William F. Buckley Jr. welcomed Ronald Reagan to this program many times throughout the course of his public career. And after he was president, Reagan came onto the program and spoke about the national debt. And there's another thing that also that we should have, and that is uh, a constitutional amendment preventing the government from running a deficit. Now, the first man who ever proposed that was the founder of the Democratic Party, Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. When he first read the Constitution, he said it has one glaring omission. It does not have a clause preventing the federal government from going into debt. It's hard to get a constitutional amendment about anything these days. But are you concerned that we're past a point of no return? I think we are with regard to many of the commitments that we've made. I'm not saying we can't over the long course of history, if history gives us that opportunity, um, move back to uh, paying our own bills in a, a responsible way. But you know, the skeptics of history have, have been justified many times. They said, well, this is a cute idea, this government by consent of the people, but eventually the people will either be misled by a demagogue or will um, uh, uh, agree to uh, do the sort of things we've been doing, that is to say, uh, take from the future to uh, to uh, uh, pay ourselves money in the present. So um, the clip uh, is a reminder to me, though, that safety net programs properly and responsibly constructed, I think should be described as a conservative uh, approach. President Reagan clearly uh, agreed with them. People would, you know, throw... Uh, uh, groundless rocks at him sometimes that he wanted to get rid of the system. No, no, something that preserves um, uh, a harmony in society, that, uh, that preserves um, a basic standard of living for the broad population is a, is a way to maintain stability and maintain institutions over time. And that's why I think it's so uh, sad that we've put ourselves in a position where um, the arithmetic is, to me, is just irrefutable. We're not going to be able to do it. Now we're going to have to do some things that aren't fair. And we just have to, uh, at some point, get started and try to minimize that. Let me ask you about the most recent developments in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. You worked for two Republican presidents, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, both of whom did not hesitate to project both American values and American strength abroad when it was required. How would you rate President Biden's response to 
the attacks of Hamas on Israel on October 7th? I think the response has been a, a good one. Um, the, uh, the question is uh, whether we are in a position to deliver. Now, he's just uh, drawn uh, a line, it, it's claimed, with regard to Iran, who we all know is the sponsor of the atrocities that just happened. And um, so the question, he, he said the right things and done the right things uh, since all this started. But uh, the test will be if, if we are tested, and I hope that doesn't happen, and what he does then. And then uh, I used to frequently remind my coworkers, you know, the old, um, there's an old uh, nautical story. The, the, the young sailor asked the sea captain, what do you do when the ship is caught in a gale force wind with a, a dangerous reef to leeward? And the answer is what you do is you don't get yourself in that position. <laughs> and too often, I think, our, um, uh, our, uh, we see public leadership at different levels um, allow you know, the, the ship to get in the wrong position. And then there are really uh, no good options. Meaning the Biden administration's uh, interactions with Iran leading well, up till now. that and the, the state of our national defenses. It's uh, just not clear that that we're uh, in, in the that we're capable of doing everything that that the world might need us to do. Hope it won't. But uh, um, you know, I just was being reminded recently under President Kennedy, and I think for a time after that, the, the strategic posture of the country was to, we had to be ready to fight, which meant to deter two and a half conflicts. Um, just not at all clear when we could be looking at that many theaters of danger, um, how much of that we could do now. You've most recently been the president of Purdue University, and university campuses have witnessed incredibly heated debates around the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel. Uh, Harvard faced criticism for being too passive when pro-Palestinian student groups blamed Israel for the Hamas attacks. And it wasn't just Harvard. There were several universities who initially made statements that then had to change their statements, update their statements, um, to clarify uh, that Hamas had attacked Israel. Uh, if you were still Purdue's president, how would you have responded to the events of October 7th? Uh, Purdue, uh, in, a, in a way that many colleges uh, have observed, and I still think makes sense, has uh, uh, under under a bylaw first passed in 1968, observed the so-called Calvin principles, which were uh, created as some other important statements were at the University of Chicago, which said basically that universities should not take institutional positions on matters that don't deal with their own business or business of higher ed at least. I think that's a very good rule. Now, some of the schools you're thinking about or just mentioned had uh, not observed that, had, had spouted off on all sorts of things that, um, in, in my mind, are, were lesser matters and what isn't than the atrocities of, that we just saw in Israel. And that put them in a very difficult position. If you can sound off on topic A and B and C, then how do you remain mute in the face of this? So um, I thought the appropriate 
um, in, in, uh, approach, and there's no easy answer to this, was strong personal statements, as uh, many presidents made, to particularly to the uh, Jewish communities on their campus, um, but uh, stay away from um, institutional statements that set a precedent that then you'll be challenged to uh, talk about other things uh, in the future. You know, if anybody really needs um, uh, moral instruction in the, on the subject of killing babies, uh, then, um, you know, I'm not sure what anybody, any university president, anything any university president says is going to help that person. So then what is your view about the responsibility of universities to speak out about events the fundamental responsibility of universities is to is to uh, vigorously in an uncompromising way protect people's ability to speak. They've been violating that uh, by uh, either actively or tacitly in way too many uh, cases, and so that um, that's that's the real task is to clean that up. I think I see I think I see some positive signs: the excesses, the cancellations, the shouting down, the disinvitations seem to be diminishing a little bit. People who shouldn't, who did know better all along in, in capacities of leadership, are starting to assert that a little more. Um, you know, we once again. You're so much better off. You never get yourself in that position. Yeah. New University, we made a major point of this. The, the, if, if, uh, if you were an incoming freshman, which you look like you could be, Margaret. Oh, thank uh, you. Uh, Go on. Fall, yeah. <laughs> if it's not the first modules in the first morning of your three-day orientation, you're going to hear a free a, a discussion of free speech. What it means, why it's important, how it's central to the academic enterprise. Mm -hmm. Um you know, leave aside minor matters like the Constitution and basic freedoms. Sure. Um, the university exists to advance and, and transmit knowledge, and knowledge only advances through the collision of ideas. John Stuart Mill said both teacher and learner go to sleep at their posts when there's no enemy in the field. It's, it's essential to the progress of knowledge and to the learning process. And so um, young people, unfortunately, um, many of them have not heard that on their way to college, and I think they, they need to. And um, uh, when they do, I, I think they, they tend to respond pretty positively. I've just come from a campus which has not um, uh, been free, has attracted some criticism for some uh, failures in the past, but I had, it was a very um, civil and appropriate conversation that I had with uh, some very interested and engaged students, and it can uh, still happen, and I hope will happen more often. As president of Purdue University, you were the first university, public university, to adopt the Chicago Principles Statement, um, which was a commitment to free speech on campus regardless of how, quote, unwelcome, disagreeable, or even deeply offensive yeah. speech is. Did you notice a shift on campus after you adopted those principles? Ours had not been a campus with too many, I won't say none, too many trespasses of this fundamental right, too many attempts to silence people and so forth. I think there have been fewer since. And I do think that that clear statement by our trustees um, 
may have had something to do with it. But I have to say that um, uh, our, our faculty, by and large, have been supportive and understanding. I, I was talking about the, the, the orientation of new students, and uh, um, our faculty have been a part of that. At Purdue University now, um, it's a requirement for graduation. You pass a civics test, a test in the fundamentals of, of, of um, our constitutional system. And um, uh, you know, our faculty have been intimately involved in uh, fashioning that program and uh, the, uh, the activities that a student must, uh, they're not onerous, but sometime in the four years, three or four years, a student has to undertake certain activities, there's a choice, and then pass a test. And the faculty's been involved in all that, so. Um, did, I, did, you, did that help? Did, what, what, I guess my question, <laughs> I've often said, uh, anybody who graduates from high school ought to be able to take a citizenship test. Yeah. That any immigrant yeah. takes this. So, I mean, you, you, you sort of implemented your own version of this at Purdue by requiring graduates to take, to pass a civics test. Yeah. Well, it's too soon. This is only the second year. Um, the, the, to, the, this year's uh, and last year's incoming students are required. It was optional. You can get a, a, a sort of a badge on your diploma if, if you uh, had been with us already when we did this. But um, uh, you're right, of course. But unfortunately, um, it's we've learned, and we've uh, these episodes that you ask about demonstrate that uh, way too many young people have simply not been either taught or even exposed to these ideas. And so, um, yeah, I, I I I hope it uh, will matter and and will help. But uh, um, uh, if it, I wish it hadn't been necessary, but as we saw it, it was. Back to the question of free speech on campus. In the wake of the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel, you know, Governor DeSantis has encouraged Florida officials to direct state universities to disband groups with ties to the National Students for Justice and Palestine organization. Um, and he's cited the, the group's activities saying that they amount to support for terrorism. What about student groups on campus and their rights to free speech? I think you have to protect them. That doesn't mean you condone, you're free to condemn, uh, uh, but uh, I, I would be very, very hesitant. You know, the, the students involved, at least many of them, don't think that's what they're doing. Right. I think they have a, an incorrect and warped view e uh, even of the uh, facts on the ground in Israel, the, the, the history of Israel and so forth. I think they're just profoundly wrong about all that. Then what should uh, Harvard I, have done about the student groups? Well, condemn in unequivocal terms those, I mean, this is something that happened on their campus. This is not the university expressing opinion or pontificating about events elsewhere. And so I do think that was, that was something that was called for and their um, rather tepid initial reaction, of course, uh, I, I think spurred a, a fairly uh, interesting uh, backlash that may be uh, helpful, too bad it happened, but it, it may be uh, somewhat helpful over time, in particular the, the uh, reaction of some donors who have finally said, you know, uh, 
no more money while this goes on. Um, by the way, I think the uh, uh, statements by some um, uh, employers that, uh, you know, we're not interested in hiring somebody, an individual like that, doesn't say the group should be banned, but that they're perfectly at, I should feel perfectly free to make an individual judgment. And that seems to have gotten the attention of people in a what could prove a helpful way. You think it's a perfectly appropriate yeah, for sure. employers to have the ability to rescind those offers? Absolutely. You know, somebody who blamed all, all this on the victims, uh, on the, that, that's what the statement said. And they not only said something supportive of Palestinian rights or something, they blamed this uh, miniature Holocaust on the Israelis. All right, well, that shows both a uh, lack of moral sense and a sort of a, a, a kind of judgment that I wouldn't want on my payroll somewhere. So of course they had every right to do it. And, and it, uh, again, it may uh, have, if it caused some people to you know, stop and think and reflect on um, their reflex action here, maybe that uh, has some long run benefit. Let me ask you about the cost of higher education. Um, you've spent uh, the last several years as the president of Purdue University. And in your first year there, you set out to pause mm-hmm. a rise in the cost of tuition. And that one year pause turned into a pause that lasted for your entire tenure as president of Purdue um, and continues. Uh, you attribute the success, you say, to cutting inefficiencies, reforming the healthcare and pension systems, and increasing the size of the student body. There aren't any other universities of Purdue's size who have not seen dramatic rises in the cost of college education. Mm-hmm. Is what you did at Purdue translatable to other universities? I have to believe it is, although we were always very, very careful to, uh, never to prescribe. I can't tell you how many um, very generous invitations I turned down to go you know, speak at other schools or come visit somebody's board of trustees or something. Um, we thought it was um, the right step for us to take. Uh, many people don't know this, but Purdue's a land-grant school. We were put there to widen the the, the gates of higher education, and we believe very uh, passionately in uh, trying to remain uh, affordable and accessible. But what began as, uh, uh, you're quite right, I had never imagined uh, when I got there, and Purdue was in keeping with the rest of higher ed, they'd raised tuition 36 years in a row. And uh, I uh, yeah, w- was coming from really 10 years of constant travel. Uh, and I, In the previous job, I made quite a fetish almost of going to all the places that hadn't been visited in a long time. I stayed overnight in people's homes 125 times instead of- As governor of Indiana. As governor of Indiana, instead of hotels. And, uh, you know, when I got there, I told this anecdote before. When I said, why don't we take a one-year pause just to show that we're sensitive to this? And of course, the um, expected reaction, you know, we'll have to turn out the lights and, you know, I knew not to pay attention to that. I'd seen that in business. I'd seen that in government. You know, there's always that bureaucratic um, uh, impulse. But um, the most fascinating reaction came from a very talented woman who was the head of admissions who said, oh, Mitch, if 
if we do that, uh, people will think we don't have confidence in our product. Meaning that when everybody else is going up, and if we don't, people, people were associating the cost with the quality. The cost with the quality. There's, no, there's been no proof of quality in higher ed. No way to know whether a biology degree from school A was really, really given a better grounding than the one at school B and so forth. And so uh, I remember I said, you know, to see flippantly, I said, now, I said, gee, Pam, I said, now, look, I just landed here on Mars. <laughs> to me, this is an alien uh, planet. But back on Earth, that's not what they're saying. They're saying, they're beginning to say with, with good cause, why does it cost so much? And are we really getting value for that? In an early interview like this, I think it was public uh, broadcasting at home, somebody asked me about all this. And on the um, just uh, ad living, I said, well, we're out to deliver higher education at the highest proven value. In 10 years that followed, I never found a better way to sum up what we were trying to do. Value, uh, as I was always reminding people, is not just about price. It's the fundamental equation of life, whether it's at the grocery store or your tuition for your daughter. It's quality over cost. So we were very attentive to both. We invested heavily in quality and improvements of the academic uh, offering that we had, not just the cost. And then we were out to prove, and this is a, still a work in project, progress of uh, trying to measure in ways that people haven't before. Are students growing intellectually? Are they particularly in critical thinking? Um, so um, I was wrong about, I really thought and said to people, we better address this issue or the market is really, either the market or as a public school, the public authorities are gonna come down on us. I was wrong as to how long it took. It was several years really before I think the clamor got to the point where schools that had kept on going up um, began to really feel pressure. And today they really are, uh, compounded by the fact that the number of young people we're producing has flattened out so that we produced 18 years ago. And that the people now have, are, are really questioning whether they need to go to a four-year school at all. So you roll all that together and it's a tough time, but uh, um, I, I was glad we acted, uh, you know, before we got near that reef. So are we really saying that there are no concrete steps that other universities can take based on your experience oh, sure to lower there, tuition? Sure there are. You know, you, you mentioned some that we've cited and there were others. We were very, we were careful. We had to do a lot of building because the school did grow. And, and you were right to point out that, uh, um, that we, uh, both by design and as a consequence, we know of, of affordability is a major factor. Um, uh, Purdue grew by 30% over those years. And so without raising the price, that's a lot of revenue. But um, no, you know, we were careful about gold plating of the facilities we needed, things like that. Um, you know, this may be a little bit of romanticizing on my part, but I think I, I think this it's, it was true. I used to say that on a campus, on a free speech uh, committed campus, where thank goodness people disagree about all kinds of subjects. Uh, 
there's one thing uh, I thought everybody um, that, that I could find agreed with from the most senior faculty person through the administration of, uh, of, of my colleagues right down to the staff was uh, that we should make, try to be as affordable as we could and as accessible as we could. And when you get a, a large organization, business, anywhere, government anywhere, pointed in a common direction, you know, people do things that you didn't, didn't think of or maybe didn't even hear about that help. And uh, I think there's an ethic of that at, at Purdue University now. People are really proud of 12 years. Um, by, by the way, we reduced the cost of room and board. So it's less expensive to go there now in nominal dollars, no inflation adjustment, than it was in 2012. I guarantee our students and families are happy about that. Um, our alumni are enormously proud of it. And I think the people of Purdue are too. And so um, uh, I think that it became something of a self-reinforcing process as we went on, as the years went by. Um, you've said that you could not, quote, think of a less defensible act of public policy than President Biden's student loan forgiveness program which was struck down by the Supreme Court in June. And you argued that it rewarded the wealthy, uh, would add to the government's debt, and was unconstitutional. Well, you left out a couple arguments, but yeah. Is there a role? <laughs> Is there a role for the federal government handling mounting student debt, which is now $1.7 trillion? We say handling. Um, uh, you know, the, the federal government took over lending, where, whereas once upon a time it, uh, it supported it. Um, it, um, in essence, nationalized it, it yeah. uh, under President Obama. Um, at, at the time, uh, the nation was told it's going to save a lot of money. It'll even be a money maker. And of course, it turned into quite the opposite. So there's a, there was an experiment that didn't work out very well. Um, what arguments did I leave out? Well, it, uh, it, it's a terrible, there's a moral hazard. If you start forgiving this debt now, it's a, it sends a signal in the future, hey, you can probably get off the hook too. It's incredibly unfair to people who uh, lived up to their obligations. I worked for a university where 99 plus percent of those who borrowed the money, of our graduates who borrowed the money, paid back. And uh, what was one supposed to say to them if they watch the people who came along behind them suddenly let off uh, the hook. Uh, we know that with each increasing subsidy of higher education by the federal government, that it's been a driver of the higher costs. The, the most authoritative est estimates say, you know, two thirds or more, you raise the subsidies a dollar, the co colleges have been pocketing two thirds or something like that of the money and just charging it out. And people used to ask me, these questions all the time, uh, you know, this problem of student debt. I said, well, you could start by not charging so darn much in the first place. Well, that's what you did. Yeah. You know, they calculate it at Purdue every so often. Um, if, if we had raised tuition at the, at the national average, just at the average, by now Purdue families would have spent something like 1.2 or $3 billion more than they did. So that, that makes that just makes a lot of difference in the economic lives of those families. And and it turned out to be 
um, I'm sure a, a, a tipper, a tipping uh, factor for a lot of students who decided to come to Purdue as opposed to uh, the other choices they had. The Biden administration has, through other federal programs, managed to cancel more than $48 billion of student debt since the Supreme Court ruled mm -hmm. in June. Do you think the Biden administration is circumventing the Supreme Court's ruling? You have to ask the justices who issued that, I thought, com completely obvious and correct decision. I mean, the, the fundamental point, one more that we, we didn't cover is, you know, no president um, sh should ha ever have the right to spend one dollar, let alone several hundred billion dollars at the stroke of a pen. You know, if there's anything the Constitution's clear about, it's where the power of the purse resides. And so uh, whether they have circumvented that in ways, I can't say that every one of those, there, there, there were uh, certainly some schools that misled um, applicants and where that's really clear, I think that some sort of an adjustment is in order. You know, um, I have always favored uh, putting you know, the, the schools at some risk. If you're going to accept students who um, whose education is being somewhat in part paid for by the federal government and they don't pay it back, um, the school, by the way, it wouldn't take very much in, in my judgment. If the schools would, it just had a little skin in the proverbial game, 10% or something, some small uh, uh, share of the amount defaulted, it would shape them up in a hurry, both in terms of the rigor with which they taught students, make them less likely to uh, not be able to uh, live up to it. And um, um, they, they'd just be much more uh, careful. Um, they wouldn't want the reputational risk and they wouldn't want to lose the money. Um, I think that's a far better approach, honestly. As governor, you supported education reform. You instituted one of the largest statewide voucher programs in the country and have also gone on to launch a network of charter schools, the Purdue Polytechnic High Schools. Um, there is polling earlier this year uh, that the majority of adults from both parties now support charter schools and voucher school mm -hmm. programs, voucher programs. And I wonder how- Black Americans do. That shift mm -hmm. in the politics of this issue yeah. is pretty remarkable. I think it's one of the healthiest things going on. You know, um, uh, I think it reflects a growing public awareness that too many of our um, uh, government schools, public schools are, are not serving children well. Um, you know, clearly, people had uh, their eyes opened uh, during the pandemic. Many parents uh, sat behind their child at a computer and saw what was yep. you know, being done or not done. There was all that. They saw in too many cases, um, um, teachers unions and others uh, looking out for the adults first and the children were secondary in terms of um, of their behavior. Um, but you know, to me, Margaret, um, uh, although I think the evidence is really clear that um, we need a wider range of choices, 
young people are not the same, so every school should not be the same. There's that. The competition that the advocates of choice have always argued for is real. I can promise you this, having you know, come from a state where we made a really comprehensive choice, your choice of public schools without paying extra tuition, your choice of charter schools is broader, and then, of course, the um, so-called vouchers. Um, but, you know, below it all, to use a term that I think gets um, tossed around too loosely and has been appropriated by people who don't own it, social justice. You know, to some people, social justice just means taking money from A and giving it to B, and maybe sometimes that is just, but that cannot be all of it. If that term means anything, yeah. it has to mean that uh, a, a poor family or a, a low-income family or a minority family or an immigrant family has the should have the same range of choices that their wealthier neighbor does when it comes to the their, their, ch their children's future, if it means anything. And so I think all that has finally, you know, uh, come together in a, in a positive way. We were talking much earlier about what could change in our politics. Well, things do change, and not always in unfortunate ways. And you've just given a great example, I think. Well, it's 10 years, 15, 20 years, 30 years in the making, um, but it's really uh, come to bear fruit. Well, it's, it, it's, it has. It took way too long. We've lost a lot of uh, children and a lot of human potential along the way. Uh, but uh, let's, be, let's be glad that, um, that the, uh, this is blossoming now as, as it is. Well, I don't want to take a turn for the worse, but I do need to ask you about uh, the next presidential contest, which is on the horizon. Mm -hmm. um, could be optimistic. I look forward to your optimism. Um, President, former President Trump remains the front runner for the GOP nomination in 2024. Um, and you have admittedly stayed away from partisan politics for the better part of the last decade. Um, but you have not uh, refrained from criticizing President Trump from time to time. Um, and you also, after January 6th, congratulated Joe Biden for having, quote, fairly and indisputably won the presidency. Um, you were didn't mince words about the Capitol riot, calling it awful and inexcusable. Um, as the field shapes up for 2024, um, what are you hearing from the candidates? Well, I'm not hearing anything. And uh, are you advising anyone? No. No one's called you for advice. Oh, I won't say that. But I, I'm, you know, if, if I was going to violate my vow of celibacy, uh, political celibacy, Margaret, you'd probably be the one to get me to do it. I'm going to try not to. Uh, look, I'll just say, uh, you say, what am I hearing? I'll just tell you things that are visible. Of course, I watch as an attentive citizen should. Uh, here's something I see. Um, uh, I see, I think, an ahistorical moment um, with the parties who historically competed for the middle. Now, uh, very much the uh, uh, dominated, I won't say totally captured, but dominated by their uh, more uh, ardent extremes. And an unprecedented uh, percentage of people across age groups and geography and elsewhere who express um, little or no confidence in the two parties. Um, on top of that, I see an election in which, until something changes, seems destined to be between two octogenarians. That's new. 
and raises questions of its own, quite apart from um, the uh, philosophical and uh, other differences that that divide us right now. And so, um, I'm not predicting this, but I don't for a moment agree with those who say, well, third candidacies just never have, they never work out. Uh, I know the history, but uh, you know, every so many decades, something does change. Um, there I was standing in, in a building called Wig Hall last night. And, uh, you know, the, they're the, not the, around. The Wigs are no longer around. Well, since you mention it, um, there is an independent group called No Labels, which uh, continues to lay the groundwork for a third-party candidacy uh, for the presidency this um, in 2024, they're working to establish a, a third line on the ballot of fifth, all 50 states. Um, now, you have said that you have no interest in being such a candidate, but right. you've also defended the strategy. And I've heard you say, you know, you don't buy that this is mission impossible. Why I, not? Well, I did, for the reasons I just gave you, I just don't, I think we are in a, a, a moment that's unlike the past. You know, the reason third candidacies haven't worked out is our, our parties are two parties. We've been so fortunate. We never developed a multi-party system of the kind that, that uh, is, is common in Europe and elsewhere. Our, and our, we've had two parties because they, uh, at one point, actually overlapped significantly. You had Democrats who anybody would call were conservative than Republicans who uh, were more uh, liberal under the um, in the, on the issues of the day, um, I, I was looking back, it's not that long ago, in the 50s and 60s, um, a, a common uh, barb to throw at the system was there's not a dime's worth of difference between them. Yeah. Well, there's a, several dollars worth of difference be, between them now. And so uh, it's it, that is just a fundamental uh, difference, I think. And, and so... Uh, I think the deck is still stacked against such a thing, but I think it's more practical than it's ever been. Now, um, there's many issues beyond that. If, if they succeeded to a large extent, maybe they, maybe they couldn't possibly win 270 electoral votes. Then you're in the House of Representatives, and who's, who knows what that means? You know, I, I can't help but observe that when the president of France, Macron, formed an alternative and in a rather short order won the election over there. But he didn't run simply as one candidate uh, for the executive. He recruited a legislative uh, slate. And again, if what you really hope and pray for for the country is action against our enormous problems, I mean, big time action and change um, one person, there might be a great sigh of relief among many people. I think a lot of, a majority of Americans might feel a sigh of relief that we didn't have either of the current front runners. But, you, but, you know, then what? And uh, I think that's a question that nobody's tried to answer yet. So if voters are faced with a choice between two men who are viewed unfavorably, by most Americans, as you just suggested, are you saying you think a third party challenge would be healthy for our democracy? Well, first of all, there's no third party 
I mean, there are well, there a no labels candidacy. Would a no labels candidacy be healthy for our democracy? Well, um, let's let's agree that where we are now is very unhealthy moment, and and that's less a comment about the individuals that would be uh, they're, they're leading than about the the this predicament we're in of enormous problems bigger than we faced in a very long time, if ever, uh, and, and, and unable to act against them. You know, frankly, I would, as I just tried to suggest, if there were really a, a viable third party um, with a program um, and the ability to perhaps to implement it, I mean, the no labels folks are they're trying to behave responsibly. They, they, they produced a, a little a list of, uh, of, of issues that uh, people can agree or disagree, but they're not, cra- they're not crazy. And there's a, they, a little um, of each side's philosophy is reflected there. Again, take that to the Congress we have now. What are the chances that you could actually enact or e- effect those changes? So... It might have some therapeutic value to get us past the moment we're in, but it won't solve our problems. I mean, what you're doing is you're really reflecting negatively on our ability as a self-governing democracy to self-govern. I hate to, I hate to, uh, I'm not ready to give up on the question. I, I will just say that that book I wrote 12 years ago, I couldn't write it today. I think in, at the moment, it ha- in, in view of what we've uh, done or not done uh, since, of the appeals from both sides to uh, um, the American public, which have succeeded in different elections, um, it does not validate the uh, idea that we're um, ready to make what I consider uh, adult long-term decisions in the interest of the nation's future and the interest of the future of our kids. If you were advising the next president of the United States, what three or four issues would you advise them to focus on? We have to reform the um, safety net programs to save them. We have to save the safety net programs, and I would present it that way. It's exactly what's at stake. And uh, uh, in so doing, uh, if if through some um, wonderful course of events that's not evident yet, yet anyway, if that we did that, we would begin to create um, uh, not only a more stable future, but space to do other things we must do, like restore the defenses of this country, uh, which would which would clearly um, be on the list. What else? Um, that's not big enough. I mean, you, social if, safety if, net programs and defenses. Yeah. I mean, I just I just described uh, essentially the entire federal budget X the uh, interest costs. <laughs> so, uh, the, um, it's, it, it's a good time. No, I mean, I, I would certainly, I would certainly encourage that person to, to try to use, you know, in uh, the, the office to, uh, appeal to Americans to, you know, lay down your cudgels. We've got problems that we share here. I mean, the two I just mentioned. Yeah. Should be thought of as problems we all share, whatever your, um, a view on any other question, uh, you know, yours will not be a better future if the country uh, goes broke, if the if we can't borrow money anymore, if the world stops using the dollar, if, if we have an economic catastrophe. That 
I don't think, there may be a few people who think that'd be just swell because they have convinced themselves this is a, not a nation worth saving or uh, uh, rebuilding, but I don't think there are too many of them. So um, uh, I think that, um, I think a, in general, something I regret is how uh, every question seems to have been nationalized. Yeah. By nature, you know, the collapse of local journalism and there's, this has been much discussed and analyzed. And that in general, I don't think that's a good thing. And I don't think it's uh, uh, healthy or constitutionally appropriate or anything else. The, the way in which we uh, fixate on the White House and the presidency. Um, but it's a fact of life. It's a fact of today's media and all the rest. Now, that said, it does. I think, enhance the opportunity for whoever sits there, for she or he, to say to America, to set an example in the way they conduct themselves and, um, and to, uh, you know, say to America, we've got our differences and, I, and um, you're going to know what I think about these questions, but um, I love this country and the people in it. And uh, uh, we're going to, we have to find ways that uh, we can all uh, move move forward together. So that'd be number three if, if you need three. Then I have to ask you, Governor, could you be comfortable if Donald Trump were to return to the Oval Office? I'm just not going to comment on, you know, I, one can just always hope. That's all I can say. You know, uh, I could say the same thing about uh, about the about the president. And people can always change direction and reform. It would not, what I just outlined would be, uh, you know, at variance with what both of them have said, done, and too often the way they've um, uh, talked about and, and behaved toward their opponents. You know, President Reagan, I used to remind people, uh, there, there were times when, uh, you know, when I was working for him that a few of us hotheads I was sometimes one of those, you know, would get a little too boisterous about things. And he used to say, well, no, 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 we have no enemies, only opponents. And, uh, you know, later on when my one turn in elective office came, I tried to uh, practice that. And, um, you know, maybe somebody, maybe at some point, someone will decide that that's uh, not bad practice. Keep hope alive. Sure. Right. Um I just want to be clear. Are you saying that you're equally troubled by the prospect of both an, another term from President Biden and another term from President Trump? Or are you just saying you'd prefer I just don't not want to, to comment? I'm not trying to personalize. I don't want to personalize any of this. I, I, I've tried to be clear about what I find troubling about the country. And uh, uh, so I'm earnestly yearning. If one of them got up tomorrow morning and said, you know, I've thought about this some more, and, and we've got to do things differently, maybe a little closer to the uh, topics we just talked about, I'd be very happy. You know, I'd be real happy uh, because one of, one of the two of them is most likely to be uh, our leader for the next few years. Is there a role for you to offer your services to the country in that next chapter? Oh, I don't think so. No, I think I'm past my cell date. And, uh, you know, again, these some of these things that I'm saying, just again, they don't seem to be uh, uh, in, in vogue these days or compatible with 
with the most likely uh, uh, leaders we'll have. You appeared on this program in the very first season. Um, and at that time, you said that the big question for America is whether we're going to be able to be a self-governing people for the long term. Mm -hmm. A lot has happened since then. And some of it hasn't been as reassuring. Right. Um, as you look ahead today, how do you maintain your optimism? Uh, because America surprised its, um, its uh, doubters on past occasions, many of them, because it's, it's, it's true that for as uh, negative and, uh, and harsh and sometimes uh, hostile as, as our climate is now, um, history's full of examples where we've had moments like that before. So I'm trying to keep some perspective about all that. We still, for all our problems, I can't name a country in the world I'd like to trade problems with. China certainly not one, as, as much as I uh, worry about their intentions and capabilities. So um, you know, I, I sort of raised to be an optimist. Life has taught me to be an optimist where this country's concerned. I'm going to, I'm, I'm struggling more than before because you, you can't blink away the facts that are sitting right in front of you. But uh, no, I still think so. And then I'll give you one uh, rather perverse answer that's been on my mind a lot lately. I mean, history is also full of examples where a, a civilization, a country, a, a society had a terrible wrenching change of some kind, a crash, a crunch, a military defeat, something that very, very regrettable at the time, but emerged better than before. Think Germany and Japan after the war. Um, and uh, so that's the least um, responsible way for a self-governing country to, you know, um, move forward. But if something un, um, uh, really uh, regrettable happens, it doesn't mean the country's done. It just means that um, we'll have to pick up and move forward, maybe with very different institutions, different political parties. Um, uh, there might be, there'd be some damage done along the way. You know, uh, one thing that happens when a country or society comes to a point like that is these encrusted, you know, the encrusted special interests that sort of calcify, grow up in a successful country. There's a lot of historical literature about this are swept away and the green shoots of something new can come up. Now, there's a lot of casualties sometimes along the way when that happens, but, um, you know, I still believe that, uh, Nobody's going to find a better formula than one based on ordered liberty and, and human dignity and individual freedom, political and personal. And, um, you know, I hope those are going to be enduring principles, even if we have to go through some sort of ringer and reorder the institutions that serve us. Governor Mitch Daniels, thank you for joining me on Firing Line. Enjoyed it.